this week's TripCast, we'll talk about the latest scandal to rock the Texas House, the receipts for Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's inauguration, and Castro missing the fifth Democratic primary debate tonight. But before we do, I want to thank our TripCast sponsors. Exposing the 20 medical myths, why everything you know about healthcare is wrong and how to make it right. Available now on Amazon. And Texas Farm Bureau. Big isn't bad and small isn't better. It takes farms of all sizes and the families behind them to make agriculture work. Read more at txfb.us backslash small farm. Hello, this is Alex Samuels here on Wednesday, November 20th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by Tribune CEO Evan Smith. Hi, what happened to that other lady who hosts the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oof, oof. Maybe we'll, we'll get to that maybe a little uh, later. Uh, maybe. I mean, I've already forgotten her. <laughs> oh, too soon? Too soon? Uh, <laughs> sitting next to him is uh, state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello, uh, almost good afternoon. <laughs> and higher education reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Thank you for having me. I like this. This is a nice configuration of people, isn't it? <laughs> should be good. We should do this every week. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. We'll also be taking your questions in real time via Facebook and Twitter. So send them our way using the hashtag TripCast. Okay. So Cassie, who would have thought that Dennis Bonin sharing political confidences with Michael Quinn Sullivan would have real competition for the biggest blender a House member might make this year? Me? That's a Cassie oh, Pollock question. Me. I, I don't know. Is is my <laughs> is my answer? But I, I can tell you the news. Yeah. That okay. You may be take us take us to. back to last week. Right. What so last week uh, it was revealed first uh, via a leaked affidavit, and then later confirmed by us and other news outlets that uh, State Representative Poncho Navarez, an Eagle Pass Democrat and chair of the House Homeland Security Committee, was caught on surveillance footage in September dropping a sealed envelope uh, with cocaine as he was leaving the Austin airport. Um, so that all happened in early September and the affidavit was filed in late October. Uh, again, we found out about it last week and essentially since which, then- Which is November. Mm. Right, we are in right. November, right? Mm. Um, and Crazy. Where we essentially went from there is um, a warrant for the, the state representative's arrest. He turned himself in, he posted bond, and now the house is at, um, I don't know, a point of debate over- who can do what and what can happen next in he's, terms He's of, not resigned, right, Cassie? He has not resigned. We have, um, I guess, kind of in the middle of all of this, uh, the Representative Navarro's announced unexpectedly, it, you know, even took his colleagues by surprise that he was not going to be running for re-election in 2020. And um, He deactivated his Facebook, too, right, like, right, before that. Right. And that was about a week before all of this news broke, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually just, I wrote out the timeline here just so we can kind of put it all into place. So September 6, uh, Representative Navarez uh, is seen leaving the Austin airport. Uh, surveillance footage shows him walking out and stepping into a car that was later confirmed to be his chief of staffs. Um, and that footage showed that he dropped like a white paper object. Obviously, DPS, Department of Public Safety, gets involved. Um, and, and can I just ask, so it is in fact confirmed that it was an envelope with his name on it? Oh yeah, that's that's in the affidavit. So Office of State Representative Ponce Navarro. Right, right. Kids listening at home, pro tip. 
if you have the cocaine in his official house don't seal. put it in an envelope with your name on it yeah right right <laughs> this is like lev and igor level uh you know thuggery this is like like crazy stupid stuff i don't right? know i mean just to just to you know see the other side of the equation here you know you could argue that a, an official house seal maybe equates to uh, state employees not opening up the the sealed envelope. That's I, a good question. Know, why right? why did why that's was a, that's okay? Thing cocaine like, defender Cassie Pollock. <laughs> I mean, but Please why was the on. why was the first reaction when seeing the envelope to open it up and see what the contents were rather than returning it? Well, that is Navarro's. a good question. That's a good question, and honestly, like I don't really have answers for you. I mean, what we have to go on at this point is, uh, you know, this uh, search warrant affidavit, and then the search warrant that, that was, I guess, attached to it. And uh, you know, we know that Texas Department of uh, Transportation and DPS was involved in mm -hmm. just like locating this envelope, asking themselves like, what do we do with this, and then eventually getting it to a crime lab where they confirmed that its contents, white powdery substance was, uh, you know, roughly two grams of cocaine. Do you know why it took six weeks between the time that Representative Navaris is alleged to have dropped this envelope and mm -hmm. the affidavit was filed? Seven weeks? I mean, no, yeah, and the, the, the timeline has certainly, I think, just prompted some sort of question as to, you know, it, it certainly being a curious timeline. I think uh, in terms of, you know, September 6th, the events happening then, and then October 29th, the mm -hmm. affidavit getting filed, uh, I think some were pointing to the fact that, like, just sometimes the crime lab takes that long to get results back to people. Um, yeah, but the other thing is, Representative Navarro's is out. I mean, again, no no disrespect right. to him as an individual. You know, right. If he's guilty, he's guilty, whatever. But if a kid at 12th and Chacon in East Austin dropped a, an envelope with two grams of cocaine, would he be out walking among us for seven weeks? I mean, what, what, I, I, I just have a lot of questions about whether this was a situation in which, because this is an elected official, I'm not the only one to ask this. Right. Did he somehow get treated differently? Did the timeline extend out longer? And then I was going to ask, I mean, is there a question of foul play considering his chair role? I mean, he chairs a committee that essentially oversees right. DPS. Right. Department of, uh, Right. The Homeland Security Committee that oh, he chairs, you know, is overseeing DPS, is overseeing, you know, everything that's happening along the border, mm -hmm. transactions happening along there. Um, so definitely, like, questions all around on this. Um, what people kept kind of asking me when we were reporting this story last week was, okay, we can take into account maybe the fact that the crime lab took a while. People wanted to keep this under wraps for as long as they could. Why wasn't a warrant for his arrest issued the same day that media outlets started reporting on this. So Wednesday night, conservative activists. So you're saying, group, even going, you're saying even going ahead to November the right, 8th right. when it was reported, a warrant was not issued until? A warrant was not issued until I, I think the afternoon, right, the afternoon like after our story was posted, mm -hmm. after our story and after right. others had posted it. Um, again, like the affidavit, um, conservative activist group, direct, acti direct <laughs> action, um, obtained a leaked copy of it the night before, Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Nothing obviously could really get done on the official side, at least publicly, and it wasn't until the following day when we were writing about it because we were able to confirm the affidavit that the uh, arrest warrant was issued. So timing-wise, timing questions all around, and that just in particular I think is striking people as, you know, you filed this affidavit on October 29th and we're at November whatever mm -hmm. last Thursday was, why right. did it take that long well, to get I, I, a warrant for his arrest out? I, I may be wrong about the time that, the, you know, I personally have never been in this situation, mm -hmm. so I don't have firsthand experience <laughs> with it. 
However, it's possible that somebody out there can point to an instance in which a similar situation takes place and there's a lag of that long mm-hmm. before the person has faces any consequences. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's just there's just something about it that doesn't make sense. And I'd love to know what the mm-hmm. what the answers right. are to that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to his chairmanship role. Okay. I mean, I think um, was it Jeff Leach, uh, Phil King? Am I getting this wrong? And James White, White. all three sent chairs. a letter to Bonin mm. saying, essentially saying, this guy's got to go. He chairs a very important committee. It is in your power to remove him as chair. And he serves as vice. Is he vice chair or vice, as a member of vice the mass chair. violence yeah, uh, right. committee? Right, Separate, right. Separately, right. And so Bonin essentially wrote back, I don't have that power. I mean, so what is the implication there? And a bigger question, I mean, what does that mean for Zerwas being chair of appropriations? Do we have any answers on yeah. that? So the Zerwas thing, a little bit different circumstance just because he's no longer a member of the legislature. So I, I don't know. Right, so he, res- if- he resigned. Right. He mm-hmm. resigned. He's no longer a member. And so the chairmanship of the Appropriations Committee is, in fact, vacant. Right. Mm-hmm. So Bonin's right. So just to step back, uh, Friday, uh, sometime Friday, Jeff Leach, James White, Phil King send Bonin a letter asking, making two requests. As Speaker, can you please remove uh, Representative Navarez as Chair of Homeland Security and as Vice Chair of the, the Select Committee on Mass Violence? And then can you also get this matter referred to the General Investigating Committee, which has subpoena powers, uh, obviously, they're still involved with the Bonin saga to an mm-hmm. extent. So that's kind of the avenue that they were requesting. And Bonin essentially wrote back, I don't have uh, the jurisdiction as speaker to mm-hmm. uh, remove a chair, a sitting chair. And oh, by the way, Phil King, one of the people who is on this letter, it's thanks to a rule <laughs> that you helped craft like a few yeah. sessions ago. Mm-hmm. And then also just about your general uh, investigating committee request, take it up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, well, I don't want to say a lot of people, but some people are definitely trying to interpret the the rules differently. And it's very clear that Bonin has a, a certain interpretation of his own as to what can and can't be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's been some talk of, well, you know, the state rep involved could resign from his chairmanship and then uh, remain a sitting member of the House until the end of his term for mm-hmm. pension reasons or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, Bonin, as Speaker, could create a new committee that essentially functions the same as Homeland Security and just appoint new people. Um, there's just, at this point, my read on it is that we're all at a standstill in terms of debate and interpretation of the rules. Um, yeah, but it's certainly been the case, Cassie, and I'm thinking now more of the Senate than the House, but in recent memory, I believe, and I'll want to look this up, it presumably can be can be looked up, that the leadership of the House or the Senate has in the interim changed committee chairmanships. I seem to remember that when Charles Schwartner got into that uh, uh, mess in the last interim that there was some – was there not a change made on the Health and Human Service? Maybe there was not a change made in the interim. I think it was made at the beginning of this session. Yeah. Didn't he volunteer? So it, it, t- so it, so it took yeah. him saying, I no longer want to be – Right. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to remember an instance in recent memory. I feel like there must have been one where there were changes in committees. I, it's, it's worth looking up. It may very well be that statutorily the speaker is limited mm-hmm. from, from, from doing that. Um, and in the absence of Representative Navarro's resigning right. and the vacancy of that chair created by the resignation, there's nothing really that right. could be done. Mm-hmm. Right. And while these... While this debate is certainly playing out among House members, the Speaker, everybody that we've kind of run through at this point, I mean, 
There have not been interim charges issued yet in the House. There is no sort of pending business before the House Homeland Security Committee. Mm. Um, really, and I don't want to maybe use the word urgent, but nothing, no decisions at least need to be publicly made, at least my read is until the new year when mm. committees start to work on their interim, uh, on the interim charges that have been given to them. So, to, Sh- to Shannon's point, here I am looking at this, a story mm-hmm. on January the 4th of 2019, so just before the session, mm-hmm. Charles Schwartner asking to no longer serve chairman mm-hmm. of Senate Health and yeah. Human Services. So he retained his chairmanship through the interim. It was mm-hmm. not a case of a vacancy. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. um, so, I mean, does this have any implications beyond Poncho, or is this just the case of one, the sad story of one lawmaker here? Unclear. <laughs> I mean, Unclear you know, you know, we don't know. There was, a, there was a flurry of activity at the Capitol yesterday, rumored— Turned out that there was nothing. Uh, right. And right. And DPS is a suspicion that there was more to come. Mm-hmm. Other shoes to drop on this. Yes. Potential of an FBI investigation or some which other kind of thing. Which an didn't FBI actually, spokeswoman said yeah, didn't, they couldn't didn't, confirm didn't yesterday that right. there had been no really reports of that. Haven't right. checked in again on that yesterday. Ma- Malk has come around and said, well, this is rumor mongering that's intended to target Hispanic lawmakers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's got... Uh, right. It's got a lot of stink around it, the whole thing, um, but, but nothing other than Navarro's at the moment. Right. To your point, there's still, at, at least as of last week, DPS was saying that there's an ongoing investigation into this. And mm-hmm. then, of course, there's the whole legal side uh, that Representative Navarro's is still having to face. Yeah. And then there's, I mean, members taking matters into their own hands. I think Mays Middleton, I think Matt Kraus are saying that they are in favor of a bill of drug testing. Lawmakers. Yeah, those are the only two House members that I've actually seen. Uh, I actually haven't really checked that closely today, but who have kind of come out in light of all this poncho news and, and said, you know, I support drug testing state lawmakers. Mm-hmm. If, uh, you know, if, if we're sent to Austin every two years to do the people's business of Texas, like there needs to be greater mm-hmm. you know, enforcement that everybody's kind of playing by the rules. Um, I think Representative Middleton, both are House Freedom Caucus members, mm-hmm. um, he said that he plans to file something to this extent right. next session. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I mean, responses have been uh, pretty muted. Again, like there's there haven't been any sort of public calls for uh, Navarro's resignation, at least none that I've seen, none from Democratic leadership, none from the state party. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think everybody's just trying to figure out what happens next or what should be done next. Yeah. We, uh, speaking on that, we got a reader question from April asking, can members be impeached? I think so. The General Investigating Committee essentially has the power to, you know, lay out sort of consequences. But you'd have to call the legislature back into session, would you not, to vote on that? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if that's something that, like, the committee can issue and then, like, it has to be formally adopted or voted on by, by the lower chamber. Uh, but that's something that I believe the General Investigating C- Committee, if I'm thinking of the right rule that I am have in mind, could do. Now, I want to ask one more question before we get to our next topic. I mean— has there been a lot of activity as far as Navarro is a seat? I've known, I think, two or three between two and four folks. Ram- Ramsey can't too. There, there's a, I'm at least mm. aware of at least one person who's filed for it, right? There. Mayor. We have two, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Two at least for sure. Um, I mean, it's a safe Democrat seat. I don't think right. Republicans are are hopeful or you know have any wishful mm-hmm. thinking going on that they're going to be able to flip it mm-hmm. uh, either in a, a special or in a regular year. Got it. Um, before we get to our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors. Join patient families and Texas children's expert physicians on a journey to save lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Learn more at texaschildrens.org backslash podcast. 
And Texas State Technical College is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Learn more at tstc.edu. So Shannon, you had a very crazy story this uh, earlier this week about uh, Dan Patrick and Governor Abbott's inauguration ceremonies. Could you just tell us basically an overview of what you found? So my colleague Jay Root and I wrote what is our third story about the Texas Inaugural Committee, which is this um, kind of unique entity that is created to plan the swearing-in ceremony of the governor and lieutenant governor, as you mentioned. Um, they also plan the couple days of parties that bookend that. So the most recent inaugural committee raised what is, as far as we can tell, a record-setting amount of money, 5.3 million, 4.9 million of it from um, donors and 351,000-ish from ticket sales. And the key finding of our most recent story is that a lot of that money they raised seemed to come from, or seemed to go to personnel. Mm -hmm. So um, payroll, professional fees, fundraising, that was about $1,860,000-ish. And just as a comparison point, for uh, Perry's last inaugural in 2011, about $300,000 was spent on those two categories. Fundraising wasn't even like its own line item until Abbott's and Patrick's first inaugural in 2015. Mm -hmm. So what is it that they could be trying to hide? Because I, from my understanding, we don't have records as far as where where exactly this money is going to? Um, so the inaugural committee, they they basically have to do a couple of things in state statute. They have to maintain a record of their expenditures. Um, they also have to file this financial report uh, called the final report with the Secretary of State's office. And this is you know, a really short report, basically one page of line items, but those line items are broad. So other, you know, miscellaneous, um, printing, you know, like it, there's a lot of opacity about what exactly is in each of those categories. And is this different from previous inaugural committees? No, this is, so the final report is a constant. Every year they file this report, right. the line items change, like for example, probably in the 70s, typing was a line item, not a line item so, now. So this is not, the, one of the problems this time, whatever the problems are, it, it is not that somehow the policy of disclosure has changed to the extent that they've disclosed less on this one than they have on previous. I think that um, from what we can tell, um, past inaugurals have sent a lot more information about their expenditure records over to the Library and Archives Commission, even for Abbott's and Patrick's most recent inaugural in 2015. When we asked the SOS's office for all their materials, they were able to send over like a wage sheet of how much they'd paid different um, staffers on the inaugural committee. This time, we pretty much just got this little sheet. Um, so that is kind of like the expenditure side of it in terms of the records that are turned over. But the, th like the big thing that we focused on with this story was that from this little information that we do have, we can glean that there are certain categories that seem to be rising much higher than they were in the past. So we got all of these from the SOS's office and we found some tucked away in the Library and Archives Commission. There are we literally spent days there just like sifting through the boxes and you can find a couple going back to 79. We put them all into a spreadsheet and that's where we were able to see that if you total up all of the line items that have to do with people, that could reasonably have to do with people, you know, payroll, fundraising, professional fees, consultant fees. Um, we, um, you know, stress tested it using different categories, subtracting different categories, adjusting for inflation. With all that, you can see that there is this like, you know, I don't know, curve <laughs> on those categories starting in 2015. Now, yeah. these are not taxpayer dollars, right? This is all, no. So, um, John so, Whitman. So, one question might be, why, why should we care? It's a good question. 
Maybe we shouldn't. That's it? You have no answer? <laughs> I, just leave it right there? <laughs> maybe we should. I'm not. Yeah, I wouldn't make the argument that like people should care or not care about this. So um, John Whitman, who's Abbott spokesman, did tell us for the first story that no state dollars were used. This is something you, you can see it in the clips going back to, you know, decades ago. They always say that no, no state dollars are used for this ceremony. Um, but I can only tell you what we found, which is that. Right, but but these increased. are private yeah. dollars that are being raised for the purpose of creating this experience or this event. Yeah. And there's always a question is when private dollars are donated, you're interested in that because you wonder, are people contributing with the potential of getting something back in return? Yeah, there is that. You know, there's always that question. I think that another thing we found when we were um, just kind of doing due diligence on what we had found was that we compared this inaugural to other inaugurals around the country as far as we can tell. So for example, Trump's inaugural raised um, 107 million and their 990 shows that they spent about $237,000 on fundraising. They did come under fire for spending a lot of money on like event planning firms, but in terms of the fundraising, it was much lower. And I think that one thing that we kept hearing again and again, which piqued our interest in looking more closely at the personnel costs in specific was that while fundraising is difficult, fundraising for an inaugural is apparently much easier because you're raising money for someone who's already won. You're not taking the chance of, oh, we're in a campaign. Um, are they going to win? Are they not going to win? This you're is heading someone... into an administration. It's a good time to get down the train, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, this might not be ca the case in Texas, but, you know, for the presidential inaugural, this is a chance for someone who hasn't shown support for the president to now, you know, give in a way that... Um, right. Yeah, in kind of a similar way. Also, you get these perks. I don't know how much of a big deal they are to people that give money, but there are some, like, events you get to go to... Um, different opportunities you get for your donation. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about the lawsuit and sort of what you guys are hoping to trying to figure out beyond what you have reported in this story here? Um, so we did to, yeah, we did file a lawsuit. Um, what we're trying to get is the, f the, f the, main, the records that they're supposed to maintain regarding the expenditure information. So I mentioned that these line items are kind of opaque. Um, I have them here just to like reference. So, you know, $800,000 to charity. We're kind of curious, you know, who that went to. Which charities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like who, who got that money? And presumably you'd be proud that, you know, you made those contributions. So like who got those? Us, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we just like to know, you know, what exactly was the money spent on beyond these line items? And um, I think it's still kind of in the early stages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What has been the response from the governor, lieutenant governor's office since your story came out? Um, oh, they're thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, we tried really hard to be super transparent with them in the lead up to this story, like full, this is what we found. We see 19%. Is it possible that there's any other things that are being included in fundraising? And, um, uh, you know, I don't think that what we published was a surprise. Got it. Well, I want to get to our next topic, which is Julian Castro. Evan, um, as you know, will not, be on, will not be on stage. Tonight. He will not be on stage tonight. Um, I but, mean, is, but Tom Steyer will. <laughs> so Castro held his own little one-on-one -on -one with a political commentator last night down in Georgia, where the event will be held. Um, about a hundred people showed up. Obviously, that's not the same same as having a national stage. But I yeah, mean, although he only got to talk like for. 10 seconds in the last couple of debates anyway. I mean, in some yeah. ways, the question is whether, you know, it's like bad news I didn't make the debate, worst news I did. Mm -hmm. You know, these debates are so meaningless in terms of the, the lower tier candidates have such a hard time <clears throat> scrambling to get any airtime anyway. Mm -hmm. These debates are basically like the Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and now one imagines Pete Buttigieg show. Yeah. And everybody else is relegated to soggy side dish status, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. 
And so if Castro had been on that stage, he would probably wouldn't have gotten very much time to speak. But, of course, you'd prefer to be there than not. Right. right? So, I mean, does not making the debate mean his candidacy is officially— Well, Michael dead? Bennett's still hanging around. So yeah. Steve Bullock. I mean, there are definitely a bunch of— John Delaney, yeah. Of, oh, I guess he is still in the race. God, I keep confusing John <laughs> Delaney with John Mulaney like it's the comedian. I don't actually remember even that he's running for president. Um, uh, no, it doesn't disable him in terms of his ability to run— uh, to, to run for president. I will say, though, that at some point in some poll, he's going to have to show up at a percentage of the vote that is above statistically insignificant. I think the greater damage to his campaign is not that he's not showing up on stage, is that he's not showing up above one or two or three percent. Mm-hmm. Probably he'd take three percent at this point in very many polls. Mm-hmm. Even in Texas, our own poll yeah. had him fairly far down. Um there was a poll of uh, of, uh, of Texas Hispanics that uh, I believe Telemundo did recently in the last week or two in which Julian Castro, you would imagine, mm-hmm. would have done well even in that poll. He was significantly behind the, the leaders. I mean, that's really a, a bigger problem for the potential of his candidacy. There are a lot of people who are correctly saying he brings something to this discussion that mm-hmm. nobody else brings. But the problem is at the end of the day, there's got to be a cut. Unless you're going to have 16 people on stage debating or whatever the number is. And, you know, unfortunately, he's not been able to make it work. I mean, he'll hang around, I assume, as long as he can hang around. Yeah. I right. mean, he's been saying that uh, we should kind of switch the order for the caucus. Now, see, I thought first. that was a very interesting conversation. So what he said was, look, for years and years and years, Iowa and New Hampshire, which are two of the whitest states in the country, are the first two states. Mm-hmm. And all the attention is disproportionately on those states. And the polling in those two states and the election results in those two states likewise have a disproportionate influence on the conversation about people's candidacies. If you don't get a ticket out of Iowa, as they say, or a ticket out of New Hampshire, you're pretty much toast. Well, Castro's point is we ought to have states that actually have a population that more accurately reflect the diversity of the country. And maybe we ought to shuffle the deck in terms of the states that traditionally go first. I suspect that Iowa and New Hampshire will say over our dead bodies, are you going to take those first <laughs> they, and they second They did say slots? that. Yeah, they wrote an op-ed, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you know. You no, to, you, it was uh, right, the state parties with uh, the Republican state party for Iowa, that chair, and then the Democratic chair. Yeah, of course chair. they don't want to give up that prime spot, yeah. right? Um, yeah. <laughs> it'd be like giving up the hosting job on this Tribcast. Who would want to do that? Um, no, the, 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 the reality is that uh, that uh, Castro can argue with the process all he wants, but mm-hmm. this is where we are. Mm-hmm. You live in a world that is not the world that you wish would be. I mean, so how is he uh, running in, I mean, is a VP status possible for him at this point? Uh, sure. I mean, I think he's he hasn't done anything to my mind that takes him off the table as a potential vice presidential candidate. He is balanced to a lot of the super old candidates who may be the nominees. Um, he is uh, ethnic and racial balance. He's generational balance. He's an experience set different. You know, you have a guy who's been the mayor of a city. He's been a chief executive compared to someone who's been a senator. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of different ways in which he potentially provides balance. And again, the, the base of the Democratic Party in an election like this is going to be younger, they hope. It's mm-hmm. going to be people of color, they hope. And, you know, he also um, uh, speaks to a lot of the issues that maybe are not part of the, of the conversation among the people at the top. And I think he'll – but he's one of a number of people, let me just say, he'll be considered. Right. Um, but it was interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, he hasn't done anything so far to really shoot himself in the foot for VP status. I was having a conversation with Patrick who – 
It's not Sve- on this. Svitek. Svitek. Not, not Dan Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> not on this podcast today. <laughs> right. um, but he thinks that his com- Castro's comments on Iowa and New Hampshire will shoot him in the foot, similar to how Beto's, hell yeah, I'm going to take your AR-15 so did. Co- confiscating guns is the same as confiscating slot one and slot two <laughs> in the primary process? I mean, it's it, it's not going over too well for him, but I don't know if that's My, my suspicion is that in away. Castro's case, if the right reasons present themselves for him to be on the ticket, it would be an always forgiven moment with Iowa and New Hampshire. They'd get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with, uh, I think the gun thing makes Beto a little bit of a harder vice presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem for Castro, honestly, is that it's not like they have to pick the number two person from the field of people who ran for president. Right. There's a whole country out there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that they're, uh, they're all going to be in Atlanta tonight at the debate. How many times will Stacey Abrams' name come up on stage just organically? It would be like a, dr- a drinking game. Every time Stacey Abrams' name is mentioned on stage, drink. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of people who potentially are candidates for vice president who are not Julian Castro who have not run for president, so he'd be in competition there too. Got it. Um, well, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to turn it over to Evan again to talk about some changes that are happening here at the Tribune. Yeah, I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, we, we've, we've announced the news that our editor-in-chief, Emily Ramshaw, and our chief audience officer, Amanda Zamora, are going off to start a new national news organization for women. I feel like this is deja vu because 10 years ago, Ross Ramsey and I were exactly where Emily and Amanda are now. When the startup bug bites, it bites hard. You get this idea in your head that you can't let go. You want to go off and try to create something that doesn't exist. And that's a very noble pursuit. It doesn't always work. I can't believe it worked here. I'm still kind of mm-hmm. surprised, honestly. Um, but I have a lot of confidence in these two. They're extraordinary journalists and extraordinary people. And we all here will miss them. But I know that everybody here also supports what they're doing and supports the general idea of trying to create something that doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. great. And it's a hopeful sign for journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm dying on the inside, but never mind. It's, uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it, and, and look, the, the, these two uh, opportunities here created by their departure will be two of the best journalism jobs in America. And so I think there'll be, a, you know, there'll be an opportunity for us to move on and move forward to our next chapter with really great people. Never replace them, succeed them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Alex, I hear that the podcast is going to be looking for a new host. Yeah. Gonna... You're looking over your shoulder. <laughs> I don't know who you were talking, like, about. Who you talking about. Well, I mean, I think, we, I think we have an opportunity here with the podcast, along with, which Emily, of course, hosted for many years, mm-hmm. along with every other thing that she did here, we have an opportunity to give really smart young people uh, here and ambitious young people the opportunity to step up and to play larger roles in the success of the Tribune. So if you three know any really smart and ambitious young people, let me know. <laughs> right? <laughs> Send me a list. Get an envelope <laughs> with your name on it. <laughs> and on that note, that is all the time we have. Uh, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and our sponsors this week, Exposing the 20 Medical Myths, Texas Farm Bureau, Texas Children's Hospital, and Texas State Technical College. On behalf of Evan, Cassie, Shannon, and our producers, Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Alex Samuels. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?